Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. It's Wednesday, January the 18th, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Lennon, and I'm joined today in studio by uh, my political staff colleague, Fiat Kelly. Uh, remember that you can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcast, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. And if you're a subscriber, we'd be really grateful if you could take a moment to rate or review the show. A little earlier, Fiat and myself talked to Fianna Fáil leader Micheál Martin about the challenges of Brexit, the public finances and the impending Trump presidency. I don't agree with Donald Trump's undermining of the European Union. I'm extremely concerned and worried about that. But first, Fiat gets back to school week for the doll. Yes, Dahl uh, returned after his Christmas break yesterday uh, into the third term of this minority government arrangement. Well, it's kind of really the second full term. The, f- the first term was mostly taken up trying to put a government together. Second term was taken up by the budget. We're now into the third term, and it's going to be interesting, I think, in some ways, because it'll really, I think, test how this arrangement will work in many ways because the legislative programme was published yesterday. There's not a lot on it, mostly technical uh, implementation of EU directives. Um, but it's during those quiet times that trouble tends to flare up and questions tend to be asked about other yeah, issues that, outside That's very politics. interesting So because many people have remarked that this is a do very little government mm. but that therefore allows for kind of mischief making on the edges doesn't it? People get bored and It does happen. and I know there is concern among some in government that the fact that there isn't much on the agenda at the moment could lead to those accu- accusations of it being a do nothing government but the nature of these things is that stuff will come on the agenda and go through the doll like you know if there's further measures to be taken in public sector pay, they will come through the doll. So there is stuff... Can you explain something to me in my ignorance, which is that on the one hand, I hear this stuff about a do-nothing government. On the other hand, I hear about the kind of groaning workload of multiple committees, you know, examining this, that or the other. How do those two things work together? Well, the reason is because... Because the way the dollar is configured at the moment, a lot more private members' bills are being tabled, a lot more private members' bills are getting through, which means they're getting through to further stages of the legislative uh, process. So, for example, they are going to committee. So previously, where you may have had a majority government that wouldn't let opposition bills and proposals to forward to maybe the Shannon or the committee or anywhere else, that's now happening. So the committees are having to deal with what examining government business and dealing with their own op- other opposition business as well. And they've been given more responsibility in this parliament as well. So they have a lot more people in. They're talking a lot more to other people or, sorry, interested parties outside uh, the houses, which they always do. So on that and basis, is, and they is, have a lot more to do. is this what our esteemed political editor, Pat Lee, he often refers to as windbagging or is anything likely to come out of all that process? Well, uh, to be uncharitable, would be to call it windbagging because a lot of what goes on in committees is, is, is largely speaking, windbagging. But... A lot of them haven't found their feet yet. So if you think of just the one committee, we had the Oireachtas Committee on Budgetary Oversight, I think it's called, which is basically a budgetary committee. We, most parliaments around the world have them, a powerful budgetary committee. It didn't really get up to speed before Christmas in time for the first budget because it just was, didn't have the time. There was no... Uh, the structures weren't around that weren't put in place. So they actually have a valuable service 
to uh, offer the Iraqis when they get un- when their business gets into stride. So, for example, we used to have the spring statement that was called the summer statement last year, but that is the budgetary uh, chain of events that will start sometime in the springtime. They will feed into that, so they will have a lot of work to do by examining that. The other is the recent weeks have seen the health service again, once more after Christmas, at the focus of political controversy with the trolley uh, crisis, the annual cr- trolley crisis we have the committee looking at the future of of the health service which is disposable but a 10-year plan on how the health service will function now that is due to report within weeks you might call that windbagging but they are supposed to come up with some concrete all-party proposal on how the health service should be structured and funded that will go to the doll for a vote now your guess is good as mine about whether these people will actually agree they're very they come from very different positions from the left to the right on how the health service should function and whether that can be put to the doll so there's another issue of where they're supposed to come up with concrete proposals we wait and see the other committee is the water services committee which we've talked about ad nauseum will they come up with a proposal i suspect not i suspect that water charge would be suspended and suspended and suspended again so that would qualify as windbagging but there are committees that show a potential for good work and the potential to reform the way the Parliament has done, but we haven't yet really seen them in operation. And in terms of the government, one of the remarkable things, I think, over the last seven or eight months is a government which was seen as very shaky and unsteady and possibly very short-term uh, in the first couple of months. So it looks a bit more solid now. It does look uh, more solid. Like a lot of what we spoke about towards the second half or during the course of the second half of last year was largely teething problems. So the independent ministers kind of trying to get their feet in this new arrangement, trying to push the boundaries a bit. Where can we get a free vote? Where can we not? Fine Gael getting used to the idea of having these people in government with them who didn't obey the usual rules of a party like the Labour Party did in the past. I think that's largely settled down now. So if you look at, for example, the, the quarrels there were over over the abortion legislation, these private members built, they arrived at a fit formula that they could use for the future. That you know, there was also a, f- a fight over neutrality bills. They arrived at that fit, fitted into that formula as well. So there are they have established kind of precincts have how to deal with issues that caused trouble last year. That perhaps you would think might not cause as much trouble this year. But then again, it might be things outside of those structures that cause trouble for the government. Fake, thanks for that. Come up after the break. Our interview with Michael Martin. What next for Ireland's corporate tax regime? What will Brexit and Donald Trump's pledge to lower US tax rates mean for Irish jobs and competitiveness? The Irish Times Corporate Tax Summit, Ireland versus the World, will answer these and other questions on January 24th in the Westin Hotel, Dublin. Speakers include EU Commissioner for Taxation, Pierre Moscovici, columnist Fintan O'Toole and Irish Times business editor Cliff Taylor. The Irish Times Corporate Tax Summit on January 24th in the Westin Hotel, Dublin. Tickets are available at irishtimes.com forward slash tax summit. Michal Martin, you're very welcome. Um, I'm looking at the front page of the Irish Times this morning. Theresa May is staring out at me. What did you make of her speech on Brexit yesterday? Um, I think it's... uh, I was very disappointed with the speech in terms of the content. Uh, I think her tone was conciliatory, but this content was was hard. And it's all pointing in the direction of a hard Brexit, uh, which will be damaging to the Irish economy, uh, damaging to the European economy, and also, of course, damaging to the British economy. So I didn't see too much of an upside from the content of her speech. Essentially, she's taking Britain, or she isn't, Britain is coming out of the single market. Uh, It will not be in the customs union. 
the European Court of Justice remit will not run. Um, and there's going to be immigration controls. The significance of that latter point being, of course, that the capacity to do a positive trade agreement with Europe will be will be um, uh, circumscribed or limited as a result of, 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 of the positions that the British government is adopting. So uh, I, I think it's, 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 it's very worrying indeed. Uh, and I do see essentially the return of borders and I see the return of tariffs unless the position is softened and unless the European Union and Britain can reconcile those differences. Is there some possibility, I mean, to be fair to Mrs May, she was criticised for not providing clarity over the over the last few months, but that perhaps some elements of this are um, a starting negotiating position? Well, to be honest, I, I've called some of this as far back as three or four months ago. In fact, at the very beginning of Brexit and the aftermath, of the beginning of the campaign on, on Brexit, I indicated that there would have to be borders uh, as a result of, of Brexit. So I think there's been too much wishful thinking all over the place for the last 12 months, or indeed since the Brexit vote, things will be all right on the night. Uh, surely they won't go ahead with it. Uh, surely we can reach nice agreements. Um, but there are some fundamental realities that if you leave the customs union, if you leave the European single market, then that has implications for the uh, trading of goods and services. Um, so as I said yesterday, you know, we can welcome clarity, but there's not a whole lot in welcoming negative clarity because I think the position is is becoming more and more negative. And I think it's, I'm not just saying this, the evidence is mounting. You know, the ESRI Department of Finance uh, assessment of this is, is bad. Uh, permanent damage to the Irish economy, reduction of income levels, employment levels um, over the next number of years if a hard Brexit emerges or any kind of a Brexit. Um, the British Treasury have made similar assessments in terms of the impact on Britain. So it's hard to find any economic analysis that suggests a Brexit would be good for anybody. But didn't we have the um, IMF today come out and upgrade their forecast for the UK economy and Mark Carney in <coughs> changing his assessment of the British economy to a certain extent as well? There's, there, there's volatility at right now, but I mean the British Treasury is very clear that there will be a sustained reduction in British GDP if it leaves Europe. The ESRI finance in three reports um, have indicated a similar situation um, for Ireland. And already the damage is, is, is there. I mean, the uh, very interesting blog by George Lee yesterday, the RTE, uh, well, like a cultural correspondent now, uh, making the point that he estimates already we've lost a billion in exports um, uh, in terms of value of exports as a result of the fall of sterling resulting from the Brexit. Uh, he instanced, as we've seen, the Board B report, which has itemised about 570 million of a loss of earnings and exports on the agri-food side. IFA are estimating about 150 million in terms of, of, of beef cattle, uh, the value of beef cattle exports uh, as a result of Brexit. And then you, he's very conservatively saying there has to be implications in machinery, equipment and in services. So the damage is already there. And I have a concern that, you know, yeah, Brexit hasn't happened. So Britain is still in the single market. Um, and my concern is that, you know, even, even in the last budget, the gravity of this over time and the medium term gravity of a Brexit wasn't really reflected in the budget statement. And there almost needs to be a call to arms to the nation to say this is a grave threat to us down and the line. And what should that involve? And then we need to prepare adequately for it. Well, well, what, should, think, what should that involve? Well, I think it's three things. I think it needs it means far more caution in the budgetary uh, situation. There should have been uh, a, a rainy fund or, an, um, or a particular fund created for Brexit because I do believe we will need to intervene to protect Irish companies. Mm. Uh, I, I, I mean, Enterprise Ireland, I've met with Enterprise Ireland 
they've identified about 25,000 jobs uh, in indigenous sector, particularly food uh, uh, and agri, and, and most of those, by the way, would be outside of Dublin and in the regions, at risk. Those jobs would be at risk in the event of a hard Brexit. Um, so I can see situations where we may have to intervene as a government with supports to companies to enable them to transition out of this uh, very difficult situation that many of them will find themselves in. Some of that support will be in helping them to find new markets. Some of it may be cushioning them, essentially, which we did in uh, in the aftermath of the Great Crash in 2008-2009 uh, in terms of reducing uh, costs to business and so on. So we do need some armory, you know. And is the logic of that then that, that, the, government, that, that, that the government and the, and the state as a whole should be taking a more prudential approach to state finances over the next two to three years than, than might otherwise have been considered? Yes. Does that mean a neutral budget? Well, it means, I mean, I'm not going to get into specifics of the budget, but I'll just make this observation. Uh, during the general election last year, uh, the agreed um, parameters by the Department of Finance was that there would be 500 million of a fiscal space. Mm. Actually, if you take the budget package and the latest um, uh, announcement in relation to public service pay, you're now looking at about 1.4 billion. For, for 217. So are you saying... So, uh, I know, some of that will... No, no, sorry, it's 1.4 after 217, and then there'll be more as a full-year costings of a lot of the items that were announced in the budget. What I'm saying is that the government will need to find money, I would, I'm predicting, to help over the next two to three years uh, companies that get into difficulty and sectors that get into difficulty because of Brexit. Um, and I think we need to convey that to the public, that... This isn't something that's on the never-never. This isn't something that's in the distant future. That, uh, and that there is that sense about the place. I meet people at various meetings and uh, gatherings and saying, look, surely it won't happen or there'll be a nice agreement at the end of all of this. And I think that view has been prevailing maybe until yesterday. And I think there might be a, a growing realization that this, this is for real um, and that um, we're going to have Britain leaving the European Union. Uh, I've been saying it consistently. And that has implications. <clears throat> and we need to prepare does, does, more robustly, I would argue, than we have up to now. Does safe budgeting mean that, you know, we just don't spend any money next year, given the economic uncertainty that you say is out there, that you said last year there was 500 million to spend, <coughs> it, infl it inflated to 1.4 now, it was 1.2 on, on, on budget days or now, for just sa standing no, I think still? You, no, you can't stand still in terms of services. Uh, I mean, we, we have to improve public services. And to be fair, in the budget... So what does uh, prudence mean then? Well, I mean, I think prudence means overall in terms of, you know, there was other initiatives that well, it's arguable didn't impact on services that were, that were allocated. But it means basically that we agree a limit as to what we can spend and stick by that limit. Mm. But to do that, you need public acceptance. And to do that, then you need to be flagging to people why you're putting money aside because there are challenges coming to people's jobs livelihoods, which is which is obviously critical to those sectors and to the wider economy. But surely the problem is that everything we've seen over the last, the first year almost, or the first the, the first nine months certainly of this government, is concessions, many of them relatively small in themselves and from a macroeconomic uh, position, but they, they add up, certainly things like the, the, the guard to pay increase, the decision that uh, we're not going to have any water charges over the next few years, a range, a range well, no, of other I mean, things. you take, the, the, just for the, let's bury the water charges impact on fiscal Neg negligible. So let's not pretend that water charges had an impact on this fiscal or last year's fiscal. It simply, it, it simply did not. Well, public fact, sector pay was, pay was yeah, public service did acknowledge that. And and equally, you know, we could argue that when we were in negotiations of the budget up to um, 
the last week. You know, government produced two to three hundred million on the last week uh, without flagging it. Um, and, um, and I would say, I mean, we're going to look at the next budget. There's two ways. I mean, there, in my view, and you know, there's articles written t- this morning in terms of how does Ireland respond to Brexit. Well, and the, the, there's a budgetary thing in terms of providing funding to help. And I have flagged this in a number of speeches now that we need to be telling our European partners that we may need a capacity to provide state aids to transition companies out of difficulties, but also the competitiveness agenda mm. in terms of the uh, development of Irish education, for example. And we've had the Cassell's report in terms of universities, and and maybe look at it as a big ticket item in terms of our longer term competitiveness what kind of things do we need to do to make Ireland fitter again to deal with this new situation which will dislocate and disrupt our existing economic model because this is the end of an economic model that we've been working with for for, for well over 40 years Can I just ask you on the public sector pay issue it came came up there and you know your party's big emphasis is services you just yourself there a second touched on it but we had this 120 or 25 million found yesterday again to accelerate the Lansdowne Road pay increase that were due in September bring them forward by a couple of months but that will come from existing funds do you support that acceleration of pay increases and if it's coming at the deficit of services which is preferable well we've been assured that it will not come at the Sure, how can it not if well, it's coming from because funds? well they're saying there's there's uh, the government have made it clear that it will not res- or they said and we'll be we'll be following mm. up on that and we've we sought answers to that mm. and Dara clearly has put it to um, Pascal Donoghue that we want to know mm. uh, and 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 need um, commitments that it will not affect services uh, because that is our number one priority as we committed to in the general election that services uh, have to be uh, improved. Um, and, and and that's not without challenge in terms of health um, and uh, housing and, and education in particular. Um, but there are there, there are challenges there. I'm not uh, saying there are not. But I think the Labour Court recommendation prior to Christmas did mm. put the government into a difficult position. I would acknowledge that um, in terms of the remainder of the Lansdowne Agreement. Now we have been critical to a degree in that we signed up to, for Lansdowne Road in the Confidence and Supply Agreement. Uh, moves were taken by the government to effectively put it to one side mm. without really consulting with anybody bar, when it, when it, sorry, anyone politically uh, in advance of that um, so we're, I think we're now entering into a post-Lansdowne um, scenario But in the answer whether you prioritise well, services think, over, pay, over pay rises yeah. like are you, are you Boris Johnson are you pro, pro your cake and pro eating it as well No we're pro services yeah. Yeah, I mean we've made up our priority is services mm. um, in, in the end of the day to return to Brexit, but from a, from a somewhat uh, different perspective, we have elections now happening in the next in the next month in Northern Ireland. What should the government's position be on how Brexit will play out in the in the in the framework which you have already described in terms of uh, trade and free movement on the island of Ireland? And how realistic is that going to be, given what we now know about the British position on the customs union, free movement of of, of people? There is a there is a there is a commitment to or an attempt to uh, retain the common travel area, but you know, is that likely to be there in the in the mix in the end? Well, I think there's been a lot of woolly thinking and language around all of this. I mean, we 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 our view is that the government and preferably both governments the UK government and the Irish government would be seeking special status for Northern Ireland I don't get the sense that the British government is looking for that um, or want to seek a special status for Northern Ireland in fact the import of uh, Prime Minister's May's speech yesterday was strengthening the union uh, because obviously there's challenges on the Scottish side as well so I think we are looking at borders the question is where would the borders uh, checks be or what form will they take 
even implicit in Prime Minister May's speech yesterday when she said we wanted to be as frictionless as possible, that almost implicitly says there will be a form of, 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 of a border and checks. And I think that's very depressing. And equally, the key issue, which I've been articulating for quite some time and recently in a speech in Queen's, uh, that you know Northern Ireland will have probably the largest cohort of EU citizens living outside of the EU borders by virtue of the Good Friday Agreement. And that unique uh, and special position does need to be reflected in the ultimate agreement between the European Union and the United Kingdom. Now, um, we do get a sense from European leaders, and the government have indicated this to us, and indeed our own contacts in the Aldi party, and we've up to four, five, six prime ministers in that grouping. There is a genuine concern that the negotiations reflect the achievement of the peace process and the unique position of Northern Ireland, and that the agreement doesn't in any way injure or damage the prospects of that. Uh, so that does give, I think, space to try and negotiate uh, something for Northern Ireland. Um, out of the norm, if you like, that could accommodate some of the issues. That said, I think the the independent economic analysis is that the North will suffer most of all from a Brexit, and particularly a hard Brexit. And as I've said, the island of Ireland will suffer as well. Um, so I'm pessimistic about the translation of the uh, conciliatory language into hard reality um, in terms of avoiding what we all want to avoid, borders, uh, tariffs on goods and services uh, and it, what what the next stage of this and phase is you know are the checks on the British in the UK from between east to west as opposed to between north south um, and obviously we want to avoid any borders on the island of Ireland and you, does it effectively mean that that from your point of view you could see us conceding uh, <coughs> the end of the common travel area between the mainland Britain and, and Ireland no I don't think we, you'd, we, you'd we, we don't want to concede that they don't want to in fairness to the British government are saying they want to maintain the common travel area but to put flesh on that in terms of the legalities around that it's been a practice and tradition in some respects and in an understanding between the two countries that both predated and obviously followed on in terms of the uh, or the, the both, both membership of the European Union, um, but um, in, the, in, in a new scenario where we're in the European Union and Britain is outside of the European Union, it's going to be called for some creative solutions. Yeah. I think it's still possible uh, for a common travel area, but I think it's going to be very difficult because um, Britain seem intent on, 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 on <coughs> having restrictions on the movement of people, particularly in terms of work. Um, uh, work permits, essentially, and in terms of so that that that, in terms of the the language in her speech and the aspiration in her speech, and they will have to come up with further clarifications of that how they intend to translate that, uh, you know, into a workable model. So, so the, is, ni- is the nightmare scenario then is 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 passport checks and custom checks on on every border crossing, and then the question is how much one can resile from that yes. over the course yes. of the negotiations. I think that's a very that's a fair assessment. It's, 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 yeah. it's not incompatible if the, if the if the examples that that is being looked at by both governments is the Sweden Norway model where you have a kind of a porous border, but there are customs checks. You can be pulled over and have yep. your checks. Like there were those customs checks before when the common travel area was in existence, yes. really. So it's not impossible that we could have common no, travel area no, no. and customs checks at the border. Yeah, that's not impossible. Mm. But I think the, the, the bigger worry is, is a political worry in terms of, 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 of checks at the border. Mm. There have always been people who have not signed up to the uh, new political uh, situation. And uh, so we have to be very careful that we don't create scenarios that, that, that uh, uh, gives fodder to people who would want to be destructive and disruptive. Given your experience in you were Minister for Foreign Affairs, 
you have experience of the North, you have experience of Europe, you have contacts in the Ali Party. Do you think that given there's a common position between the two governments that both want to maintain the common travel area, that that will be exceeded quite readily within the Brexit talks? I think there will, be, there will be some understanding um, of that. Uh, although there's more than that, though. I mean, mm. I think the trade issue is jobs and bread and butter. Yeah. I, I think sometimes, you know, the, the common travel area, yeah, the, I think a model can be arrived at if there's, if there's goodwill on all sides. But the key issue is in terms of what access will... I mean, it's interesting in, in, in the Prime Minister's speech yesterday about the reference to um, research, uh, education. I mean, that to me was critical for the young, younger people in this country over the last... ever since we joined the European Union. Um, and particularly the, the research collaborations across Europe. Now, Britain wants to retain that. Uh, and there is a sense that Europe will, will kick back on some of this. And, mm-hmm. and I think for the North, that would be a worry I'd have, that many Northern campuses and the universities, companies, businesses were aligning themselves with both British companies and Irish companies in the Republic to sort of seek Horizon 2020 funding, for example, um, or to engage in collaborative projects. And that all could potentially be shut off from the North. And I think one issue is the common travel and one issue is border, but we also need, from a negotiating perspective, to seek out ways and means of ensuring that the citizens of Northern Ireland in particular, given the fact that because of the conflict and the trouble and the violence and so on, that the economy of the North is not one that has ever really come out of that um, situation and also because of its over-reliance on public sector employment has never really developed fully in terms of a private sector model economy. One would argue and one would hope that we could get special deals on a number of fronts for Northern Ireland in relation to those issues. That interreg funding could be maintained, for example, uh, and that we could tap into the goodwill that is in Europe Mm. to try and maintain some access for the citizens of Northern Ireland in partnership with the Republic to quite a number of these EU how important is that's tangible in, and that's practical in, to people's in, in everyday terms lives. Of achieving that how important is, is, is it likely to be that the probability in fact looking at the political dispensation in the north right now that mm. after the next election that it won't be possible to have an executive in place representing well, the interests of the people in Northern yeah, Ireland that's a very fair point I think it's very damaging that at this very juncture the executive has collapsed and that the institutions in the north are collapsed uh, and I cannot fathom given the gravity of Brexit for Northern Ireland how the politicians in Northern Ireland could decide that we can have the luxury of, of, of an election, given that there was an election eight months ago. Uh, and it was only uh, this September uh, that Sinn Féin and the DUP you know, appointed an executive um, press secretary. Some controversy around that. David Gordon was appointed. And both parties said, uh, you know, we, want to, we have a good story to sell here. We have a good story to tell. We're working together. We're working collectively to deliver positive uh, decisions and announcements for Northern Ireland. That's only a short few months ago. And classically, um, Northern political parties, the European Sinn Féin in particular, can get to a situation a short few months after an initiative like that and telling everybody that things are going well, this is what Fresh Start is all about, um, and pull it all down. Now, I know the RHI and I know the DUP have been infuriating in its behaviour, arrogant, uh, but that's nothing, nothing new. The whole process of, of, of peace in Northern Ireland has, has been about getting on with difficult people and getting on with people that may not agree with your own perspective on it. Um, I mean, Sinn Féin knew about, about RHI since last February. Jerry Adams said all this in the Dáil yesterday. They knew about it going into the, into the last Assembly elections. They knew about it in, in terms of the programme for government. Um, and they knew about it right up to the present. And 
you know, it wasn't an issue that caused the collapse uh, for, for, the, for the majority of last year. It didn't damage the coming together of both parties and, and, and developing a new programme for government. The Irish Language Act wasn't even in the new programme for government. Uh, it was, it's, it's the British government has obligations in terms of the Irish Language Act in the North. It should happen. It emanates from the St Andrews Agreement. So... And, uh, so you have no sympathy for the Sinn Féin position on what's happened over the last... I, the I last don't. I, I think it's, it's unacceptable, given the Brexit situation, that both parties have conspired to pull it down. I think uh, I don't agree with the Sinn Féin decision to pull it down. Um, and um, likewise, I acknowledge, and there have been many issues from Project Eagle to RHI, where the DUP have behaved arrogantly and in an unacceptable manner. But I would say overarching all of that... Uh, the need to deal coherently with Brexit uh, is cr- is critical, and there will not be a northern voice now in, in the coming weeks until, uh, and there may be difficulties after the election. The, the, the rhetoric is hardening between Sinn Féin and the DUP. They're going to have to pick up the pieces after the election. I think there's an electoral agenda afoot. I think the reduction in the seats. I think the formation of an opposition. And I said this in the Dáil yesterday, you know, and I have experience of this. Sinn Féin accused the DUP of arrogance, and they have a point. And they're right to accuse the DUP of arrogance. But Shane Fain was very arrogant with the DUP towards the smaller parties and, and, and previous executives. I mean, we used to hear continuing criticism from the SDLP, the Official Unionist Party, and the Alliance Party in relation to how arrogantly they were treated by Sinn Féin and DUP in terms of even the circulation of government papers and memorandums and how everything was stitched up by the DUP and Sinn Féin before the other parties got to know about it or hear about it. Uh, there was a famous incident in the devolution of justice and I was involved in a negotiation for the devolution of justice and both governments did the heavy lifting on that one for over 12 months and I was involved in it non-stop myself and it's interesting that Jerry Adams casts all that side and says, oh, the governments have successively never done much for the North. It's typical. But they actually agreed between the, the two parties because Sinn Féin wanted to, avoid, wanted to avoid the SDLP getting the justice portfolio. Uh, the unions weren't going to wear a Sinn Féin minister in, in, in the justice portfolio. So what did they do? They organised that the Alliance Party would become uh, would get the justice portfolio. They didn't even consult the Alliance Party when they came to that conclusion and they announced it. That is illustrative of an arrogance that we has unfortunately week, always is, is been there. Is it way symptomatic or, or some would argue built into the inherent structures of the post-Good Friday Agreement settlement uh, that 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 kind of a dispensation will arise. That there's a there's an there's an abuse of power because essentially because and this is why the the, the whole thing collapsed last week because you can't turf, there is no real political accountability. There there is a lack of political accountability, but also there has been a tendency to switch it on and switch it off. Is my observation um, because I can recall at the time I was involved in in, in devolution of justice, we were. Both parties swore blind to us that they'd solve the parades. Parades is nothing to... They, we can deal with it, didn't say nothing, but we can deal with it. We have our point, men. Mm. We'll <coughs> organise it. They, they both didn't, weren't too favourable for an independent, proper, robust commission to do it, actually. And they said, we'll sort it. And what happened, lo and behold, later on, a year or two later, we have the, the flags disputes and we have all of that. So <coughs> I, I, at times, become very sceptical um, that there is a belief amongst the parties that they can... Uh, switch this on, switch this off, stop, start uh, when it suits. And I think electoral considerations seem to trump government. And I think they need to realise that it's about governing. And I think Sinn Féin need to realise as well that you know it has to govern. You can't be a political party all of the time just seeking electoral advantage at every turn. 
there comes a time when you have to govern as well and take those responsibilities. And I think there's been too much of collapse and chaos going on without a sustained period of actually governing, notwithstanding the difficulties, and I acknowledge the difficulties, and I, you know, I, I would, and I said this yesterday in the dial, and Mark McGuinness has, over the last decade, has tried hard and, and has, has given commitments to try and make the institutions work. But Do you, do you think that, like, you know, given what you've been saying about a hard Brexit, and what you have seen, the Taoiseach mentioned the fact that there could be a United Ireland in the distant future, the medium term, that we need to prepare for that eventuality. If Brexit is so bad for Northern Ireland that opinion changes towards unity north of the border, do you see a hard Brexit bringing or speeding up the prospect of a United Ireland? It's very difficult. I mean, I, I've been endeavouring to, um, in some respects, deal with Brexit separately from the from the prospect of United Ireland because I think there was a crude and crass attempt by Sinn Féin in the immediate aftermath of the... Fine Gael himself is talking about it now. Yeah, but I think that that is superficial and shallow in a sense that we've got to deal with Brexit right now in the context of the Good Friday Agreement and its institutions. Uh, I think to try and exploit Brexit uh, uh, and use it as some sort of battering ram to, to bring about unity is, is, is a wrong approach. Unity is ultimately about agreement and mm-hmm. persuading people to live side by side. What I've in- initiated within the party is, 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 and we're working on this, is we should learn from Brexit in a way. And if we want a united Ireland, we do. And we're, we're, we're a party that has always committed to united Ireland. And we've always seen the Good Friday Agreement as creating a framework and a, uh, an avenue towards that. Mm. Um, what, what we need to do is, is, is plan it, have evidence base behind it. What would it look like? Mm. How would you, for example, integrate the National Health Service in the North with, a, with the health service in the Republic. Mm. Um, and these are more practical uh, issues that those who aspire and want Irish unity should be prepared to uh, develop a blueprint for what structures would look like, what economy would look like, how would society... is? It, would there be two parliaments, for example? Mm. Even in a united Ireland context, would you retain, obviously, the assembly <coughs> in, in, in the six counties? Um would one have an executive in the six counties? That's the political structures. What would the economic structures be? How would you integrate systems that have been operating within a UK-based mm. system uh, for, for so long with, with, with the systems in the Republic? So these issues need to be teased out mm. because the problem with Brexit is people were asked to vote for something. There was no blueprint in its aftermath. Mm. They're now making it up as it goes along. Uh, and I would hate to think that, uh, you know, in, in the context of unity and uniting people, um, that we're not... That, w- that we would sort of, you know, Féin wanted a border poll, for example, which to me uh, was, a, was, was, was a threatening sort of approach to say, you know, if we get 49 or if we get, sorry, 50.1%, we're having a United Ireland. That doesn't work. But even they seem to have kind of withdrawn from that position, which, which was an immediate position the day after June 23rd. They have, yeah. And they're now talking about a medium term. They're almost talking along similar lines to what you were saying, which is need to convince people, they need to win mm. the argument. So in that basis, do you think that there will be more of a hearing for an argument for unity in the years ahead? If it, I think there would, will be if there's a cogent presentation of, of what it means to people on the ground. It's interesting, all the polling prior to Brexit has been on the wrong side of, of unity in the North, that people have become less and less enthusiastic about unity. You know, particularly when, particularly when they, the question you talk about, about like, how does it work is brought in, how is it paid for? Yeah, yeah basically the polls don't show much appetite for it. For her, they for don't. For, for, for they her don't. It's an awful long way, um, even away from that 50.1%. But equally, I mean, what, what would frustrate me has been the lack of development. And the DUP have been negative on this, to be frank. Uh, the North-South institutions. I mean, the DUP, when I was minister at the time, you know, we had to deal with When I was an enterprise, for example, you know, I had to deal with Inter-Trade Ireland. And 
it took a long time for the DUP to accept into Trade Ireland as a legitimate body that had no political agenda. They tried to um, uh, emasculate in the beginning and they undermined it and so on. But we got through all of that. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I believe, for example, more practical things should be progressed. For example, there should be an All-Ireland Enterprise Ireland. Mm. Uh, I, I, for one, would believe that all indigenous enterprise on the island of Ireland should be looked after by one body just as we have tourism Ireland uh, on overseas trade missions for mm. SMEs uh, it makes no sense that you have two bodies on the way to Asia or to uh, um, Africa promoting or, or, or Latin America promoting companies whilst we could do it on a collective basis and there's been moves on that foot but structurally and institutionally it would make sense if you had one United or, or one enterprise Ireland, for example. And in a speech I gave about three or four years ago, I itemized about four or five areas that you could realistically and practically, with agreement, move things forward uh, that would give greater synergies on areas that synergies exist mm. um, without, you know, undermining people's positions on the political question. Finally, in terms of international relations, and you're a former minister for, for foreign affairs, an extraordinary, extraordinary historical moment this this week when uh, Donald Trump becomes president of the United States on Friday. Um, the Taoiseach had some very strong words about Mr. Trump at a time when probably he didn't expect that he would become uh, become president. He's been described in many quarters as, uh, as uh, being responsible for racist and misogynist uh, speeches, and I think that's objectively true. What do you make of Donald Trump and what do you think the future well, holds under his presidency? First of all, he, he has been the, he is the democratically elected president of the United States. And uh, my view is we, we, we've always worked constructively with the United States. We have a very historic relationship with the U.S. And uh, we, we will have to work with Donald Trump as a country, um, just as we have to work with every other democratically elected head of, of, of state. Um, on the broader, but th that doesn't mean we change our principles or our views and point out where we think... So, for example, I don't agree with Donald Trump's undermining of the European Union. I'm extremely concerned and worried about that, uh, where he's, uh, um, without hesitation, arguing for essentially uh, a breakup of the European Union. Uh, and that is wrong. Uh, and I think we as a country need to be very clear in our communications to the United States government and to, to the president that, in our view, Europe is good for the world. The European Union has been a, um, a source of stability for Europe, uh, as I said in repeated speeches. Do we want to go back to a European, Europe of competing nations, uh, which brought nothing but a century of conflict and disaster? Uh, that is the alternative. Uh, and that's what ultimately is most damaging about Britain leaving the EU. Britain had a lot of good values to bring to the European Union. And I think that disrupting the European Union is allowing narrow nationalism to come to the fore again in Europe. And Doesn't I, Donald Trump himself represent uh, narrow nationalism? He's more isolationist, yes, in terms of, no, I would hope that some of his economic policies may be positive in terms of, not all of them, no, I don't agree with his protectionism thrust, I don't agree with the isolationist approach and his approach to trade. I mean, I believe in free trade and as a small open economy, Ireland has to, uh, Ireland would do better in a more liberal, free trading global environment than the one that's currently coming down the tracks. The big issue will be to what degree the language or rhetoric translates in, in Isn't the reality that all this language and rhetoric is bad news for, for, for Ireland I mean more broadly possibly for the world in terms of its destabilising effects but bad news for Ireland Yes I mean it could potentially be in, in, in terms of um, in terms of foreign direct investment into the country over the medium to long term it's not going to I don't think the companies are going to go racing back to America but it's about future investment mm. um, possibilities and options uh, but at the same time we cannot complain with, with, with President Trump's 
elect president views on the need, you know, if he wants to bring in more you know, investment back, if he wants to create investment in the United States, he's entitled to push for that. If he wants to reduce tax, for example, the 35% corporation tax, that's fair enough. You know, legitimately, people are entitled to do those things. But it's the trading side of it I would worry about. And the degree to which he seems to be intervening in individual companies' decisions and browbeating them into saying, you can't go there, you can't do that. That's an unusual form of government intervention uh, in, in terms of, of how companies do their business. He's a very unusual politician, uh, isn't he? It's, 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 it's an uncharted, he is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting in itself. And, um, and, and let's be honest, he was a very effective communicator during the election. He says he's not a politician. Um, even uh, even as he's That's been his office. calling card, I suppose, in one respect. But the other, the broader issue, apart from Donald Trump, I've made reference in a number of speeches to, you know, you look at Marie Le Pen in, in, in France, um, the, 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 and recent elections across Europe where the far right, for example, are coming to the fore. And there's a need for politicians to, uh, and a need for us to tackle what I call uh, a destructive populism, which was evident in the British um, Brexit uh, election. I mean, the Prime Minister yesterday spoke about the need, you know, the goodwill with Europe and wants Europe to progress. But Brexit was founded on a very narrow English nationalistic ugly campaign. We shouldn't forget that. Mm. And it was xenophobic and it was sort of we must blame them. There is somebody out there to blame for all our ills. Uh, and, you know, if we get rid of them and get take back control, some imaginary control of everything, everything will be great again. Uh, and I think that's happening across Europe. I think it was a, a very hard-hitting speech by Samantha Power yesterday uh, in the United Nations. Um, and she about, nailed, Russia, about Russia? About Russia. Russia. And mm-hmm. she nailed it. Uh, and she said, let us, let us be under no illusions what actually is going on here uh, in terms of Russia's agenda to disrupt Europe. Uh, and in terms, and she instanced Le Pen, for example, receiving funding from Russia. Um, and there's a battle going on and there's a challenge going on. And I think even, you know, democracy even, is under even, threat, even, in my view. And I think we need to be resolute and political parties need to stand up to that destructive populism and say, we're not going to have it. We should wrap it up there. Miguel Martin, thanks very much indeed for joining us. I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that at 6pm on January the 26th, for the very first time, we will be recording this podcast in front of a live audience here in the Irish Times building on Tara Street in Dublin. We will be joined by Minister for Social Welfare, Leo Varadkar, by political scientist Theresa Reedy and the Irish Times' political editor, Pat Leahy. And this is a special event for Irish Times subscribers in association with the Politics Society at Trinity College Dublin. And tickets are selling fast, so if you're a subscriber, uh, do check your inbox because you should have received an email inviting you to this event. Now, that's it for this edition of Inside Politics and thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. Remember that you can always mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or find me on Twitter at hlinehan. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.